I've made contact. I just now found them. Eridano, attention. TK Eridano, come in. Come in with emergency modulated sound if you are having trouble with the set. Come in. Over. We hear you perfectly now. TK Eridano, listening. We hear you perfectly now. Peter, we're fine. How are things with you? Tell us what's happening. Eridano, over. We're fine. There's nothing new. We're glad to hear you again. We've had tuning problems. Over. What do you know about Scott? Sexer 102. Over. We've lost touch completely. There must be some sort of radioelectric disturbance. The last we heard was about the death of old Charles. Pete! Peter! Answer me! Over. Chris, what are those noises that sound like screams? What's happening to you? Over. They're not ours. They must be some kind of interference. I've been hearing those noises for days. Maybe they're coming from the official transmitter. We haven't picked them up in days. We miss their musical programs. You don't happen to have any good classics there, do you? Okay. A few minutes of Brahms. Then we'll sign off. The curse of the devil. Exorcism, a sacrifice. Blessing or bestiality. The curse of the devil. Satan in control of the body and the mind. My love will destroy the creation. I swear that you'll find it. Hello and welcome to Beyond Nashi, episode number 34. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we're here tonight to talk to you about another pretty obscure Spanish horror film from the 1970s, which is, I guess, our favorite decade. I mean, we, mm. we do range around a little bit there, mm-hmm. 60s, 70s, 80s. We've moved up into the 21st century a couple of times. But there's this wonderful, glorious little yes. sweet spot known as the Golden Age of Spanish horror, and we've... Well, I don't think either of us have ever seen this film before. No, Ted. it's more like the Golden Age of Spanish sci-fi, I guess. It was more like tonight. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm always... Um, I know this This points to me being the, the age that I am, but there's a part of me that kind of gets shocked when there's a post-apocalyptic film that didn't get made in the 80s. Somehow <laughs> know, yeah. it was made... And he's an Italian or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean, this is this is a Spanish-made one, and this uh-huh. is kind of an oddity. And yeah. It's just something I'm just not expecting for various and sundry reasons, most yeah. of all because I'm expecting all post-apocalyptic films to be rip-offs of Mad Max 2. Yeah. Let's just say this. We can already say this would make a great double feature with people who own the dark, you know, because those yes. are two of the very rare that we've come across examples of of, uh, of post-apocalyptic Spanish 70s films. Uh, yeah, and uh, we'll leave you in suspense for now as to whether or not we uh, uh, are going to give it the thumbs up, the thumbs down, the thumbs sideways, mm-hmm. or the thumbs in our ears. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say somewhere else, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was, you know, you know, yeah. I don't want to talk about it. I don't yeah, want to right, talk about right. it. I kind of sticking my thumbs in my ears. Anyway, the I, there's an image for you folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> better than better than that horrible image that Troy conjured up. Yeah, yeah, that oh, should not be Lord. seen. I cannot <laughs> believe that you would say such things. Nevertheless, the film is 
Refuge of Fear, also known under, under a number of other titles. It's mm-hmm. from 1974, supposedly, somewhere around in that period of time. Creation of the Damned was another title it was known under. Uh, for some reason, it was released on video in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. As Survivors of the Last Race. It's which, a little strange time. Kind of I know. Like, what the hell? <laughs> but the way that it's most commonly seen these days is under the title Refuge of Fear. Yeah. Ooh, should I take a stab at the Spanish title? Oh, please. I need a good laugh. <laughs> El Refugio del Medi... 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 Medo? Medi... <sighs> M I E D O. I'm, I'm, As I, always, your heart was in the right place. Uh, your tongue refuse, was not, but your heart. Yeah, my right. tongue. My tongue is, you know, <laughs> cramped, crammed in between two very loose teeth. Apparently, I can't quite get the words out. <laughs> El Refugio del Mido. Anyway, who knows? Uh, Refuge of Fear, Creation of the Damned. Mm-hmm. Pick your title. Mm-hmm. So uh, apparently, 1974. Uh, interesting little film. I've got lots to say about it, mm-hmm. uh, but before we get to that, I did want to say that this is this is an odd little thing. I wanted to get this piece of information out there before uh, we actually... It, this is something I probably should talk, talk about on the bloody pit, but it's something that if I don't do it now, I'll probably forget. Recently, uh, if, you, if, you've, if you've been paying attention to the bloody pit shows that Troy and I have been doing, the, uh, the ones focused on the 1940s universal horror films... Uh, we usually delve into the uh, critical responses to those movies at the end of the show just to give you a taste of what the movie was thought of at the time of release in the 1940s. And one of the one of the many critics we've become kind of a fan of, at least the snippets of his reviews that we get to play with when we talk about these horror movies made in the 40s, is, is a guy named Bosley Crowther. Oh, yes. Now, uh, uh, just the name alone is enough to make you go, ooh. <laughs> Bosley Crowther, how cool! Yeah, <laughs> but he also usually has some pretty, uh, pretty insightful and sharp-witted and mm. mean-spirited things mm. to say about these beloved films that it's, we're talking about. It's like we said before, if, if if you know when you picture him, I always see like either uh, George Sanders or uh, you know, uh, oh, definitely or, George or, Sanders, yeah, right? uh, or Tom Conway or uh, Henry yeah. Daniel. You know, it's like we 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 just picture one of those forties guys who could you know wear an ascot and just deliver a withering. You know, with, withering put down, sharp, you know. yeah, it, yes, yes, an, in, an insult in such a way that those who aren't witty enough would not even be sure that they had been cut before their extremity fell off. That's so, right. Well, uh, recently, while uh, doing some hunting around in uh, a used a used uh, store here in Nashville called McKay, I stumbled across a movie. It's a Warner Archive uh, DVD release of a film that I looked at and went, "Oh, this looks kind of interesting." It's called Malaya. Uh, M-A-L-A-Y-A, movie I'd never heard of before, but I, I thought, well, this looks interesting. I, I like the cast. Spencer mm-hmm. Tracy, uh, Jimmy Stewart, Sidney Greenstreet, Lionel Barrymore. I'm like, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, I'm willing cast. to, I'm willing yeah. to, you know, spend the, the little amount of money it would take to, to see this movie. And then I flipped the, the DVD case over, and right at the top is a quote from a mm-hmm. critic. And here's the quote about this particular film. Mm-hmm. Slam bang melodrama. A full charge of high adventure. And that is a quote from Bosley Crowther of the New York Times. And I went, you know, Bosley, (laughs) if I had any doubts, the fact that you loved it means that I'm going to have to check this out. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because we know you are not easy to please, Bosley. Bosley. No, Bosley has high standards. He does. So I'm going to expect this movie to blow my socks right off. (laughs) But I wanted, before I forgot, before the press of the zillion things that will happen before our next Bloody Pit recording, (laughs) I wanted to let you know that 
if I want, I want to let you know by the next show, I will try to see if Bosley has steered me correctly with this particular Spencer Tracy Jimmy Stewart movie. So. Well, it just shows his his reach that uh, his his still being used his blurb as now like for a release now is still using a Bosley Crowther blurb. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, there you go. Um, I don't know that we have any uh, any uh, new news as far as Spanish uh, horror coming out. There is a uh, Severn did just announce the release of two uh, kind of black and white noirish films by Jess Franco that'll be coming out I think in October mm-hmm. and that's very exciting some nice mm-hmm. juicy extras on there with Stephen Thrower who's definitely the authority you want to talk to about Jess Franco and I'm very excited about that of course I've pre-ordered that sucker uh-huh. they're selling them as a, a double feature so it's, yeah. not, it's a pretty good little price for mm-hmm. those two uh uh, fairly, uh, I would have to say, underseen yeah, yeah, 60s Jess Franco films. Death Whistles the Blues and Rafifi in the City. Uh-huh. Uh, Death Whistles the Blues is a phenomenal movie. And i be honest, I can't remember if I've seen Rafifi in the City or not. Hmm. I think I may have seen it under a different yeah. title. Nevertheless, exciting, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, Spanish horror adjacent yeah. video release news. So that is very cool. Also, cool. Uh, the, uh, the print... Uh, or the uh, restoration, I should say, of Tombs of the Blind Dead that Synapse has got on tap for eventually. Someday. <laughs> even, they, have, they, have, they have not yet uh, specified even if it's going to come out on uh, Blu-ray this year or it might, start, it might come out sometime early next year. There's no telling yet. But they have screened their restoration of it at a few festivals and the, res, the, the re- reviews of those screenings have been incredibly positive, which does not shock me at all. Oh, no, no. The, the, the fine work that those folks yeah. do yeah. Uh, restoring these, these great old movies is well known and so not a surprise at all. Just uh, can't wait until we can get our grubby paws on mm-hmm. the, uh, mm-hmm. the glorious Tombs of the Blind Dead on Blu-ray, of course. And Troy and I did contribute a commentary track to that release so we're excited to have been a part of that as well. Just can't wait for the sucker to finally come out. Yeah. Well, with Synapse, you know that they're just, you know, they're 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 trying to just really knock it out of the park. Yeah. This will be one of the significant Blu-ray releases of many years, really, for 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 Euro horror fans. I mean, this oh, is a certainly. key film, yeah. and so there's, I think, they're really just wanting to 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 you know cross every sure, T and yeah. dot every I, you know, and have it have it as best it could possibly be. I think the idea is probably, as usual, to make sure that any future release will have yeah. to really exceed yeah. Yeah. expectations to a large degree to yeah. top this one. So, no news on when that one's coming out, but then I guess everyone will know right about the same time that we do. Yeah. So, yeah. Tombs of the Blind Dead eventually. So, all right, folks, hold on. We'll uh, take a quick break here, come back, and dive into a discussion of Refuge of Fear. Aren't TV movies fun? You see all these familiar faces, but doing really unfamiliar things. And I think that that's really exciting. And I think that's something important to the history of film in general. Join Amanda. There's a lot going on in that scene that is unspoken between two men. So I'm just telling you, I think there was a little Brokeback Mountain. (laughs) Dad. I think Therese is a little bipolar. Her voice, it goes from this sort of sexy, sensuous voice to, Okay, Ramsey, get out of here. (laughs) And eight. I love, you know, in like the late 70s, early 80s, the crazier a person got, the bigger their hair got. (laughs) As they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies. Mr. Hazelrick. On the made-for-TV mayhem show. This man came to see him. He never comes to see him at work. (laughs) What kind of stories could he have to tell him? (laughs) Tales of his postal delivery. 
Hi, I'm Ben from the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, which is done by myself, my sister, and my father, where the genre of the movie is decided by the cast of a die. The categories are horror, drama, comedy, action, sci-fi and fantasy, animation, and musical. Also, on occasion, we'll have a special episode dedicated to conversations with creators, directors, actors involved in the production of movies. Join us and see what movie we pick next. Refuge of Fear slash Creation of the Damned from 1974. Uh, a pretty interesting film, but one that mm-hmm. has remained hidden from view, to, at least for me, uh, for until now, until but we, did, we didn't know it. Neither of us knew about it till I think an email uh, from one of our an email from one of our listeners uh, exactly. us in on it. Yeah, uh, very interesting. Also, uh, uh, a very interesting cast. Uh, got a lot to say about the cast because, my goodness, have they uh, have we have we had some dealings with them in the past? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I would like to start with uh, let's talk about the director who only directed a handful of movies, and I would have to say after with, without going too far into it, I would have to say, after seeing this movie, I kind of understand why his major credits seem to be as a second unit director mm-hmm, instead, instead mm-hmm, of the, mm-hmm. the main driving force behind the camera. Mm-hmm. It's not much of a shot because I, I would have to say that to a large degree, his his directing style here, uh, although he may have been hemmed in by sets and a budget that was lower than he might like, it's very TV style. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. It's not. Uh, it's not a three. particularly yeah. dynamically directed film. No, and it doesn't really surprise me that he really only has four or five mm. uh, feature films to his credit. But uh, if you want to talk about his assistant directing credits, we're talking about like twenty-five or thirty other movies. Yeah, that he worked on. Um, I have to admit, a couple of his movies I have a little bit of curiosity about. One that he made in uh, that was released in nineteen eighty called The Naive Lover. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is listed as a drama. He was a writer-director on that as well, and it looks like it might be interesting. And also, uh, his last directorial film from 1988 is a musical hmm. called and hmm. called Andalusian Girl. Huh. And I have to admit, that looks kind of interesting as well. I'm not going to rush out to sure. try to track these two films down, but if I ever run across them, I'm hmm. curious enough to check them out. Uh, the director's name... Oh, I should say the director's name. Or should I say mispronounce the director's name, probably. <laughs> uh, Jose... Luayo? That may be close. U-L-L-O-A. Ulawa. Ulawa. I'm mispronouncing it. Troy's mispronouncing it. It's a mispronunciation fest. It is. It is. For that, I apologize. But nevertheless, uh, interesting that his career was what it was, but not too much of a shock with this being the only example of his work that I've seen. As for the rest of the cast, I guess we'll get to them. Uh, let's, yeah. let's take it from the top. I mean, well, there's... before we do that, I just want to say real quick that if he, if he, while the director did not direct many films and was not a really known name to us, one of the names that does really jump off the screen was the name of the producer, Jose, yeah. Jose Geiner. Uh, now that's that's a name that we have seen many many times. He was a producer on numerous Paul Nashi and other Spanish horror films. So. That was the name that really popped out as far as the crew cast, or as far as the behind yeah. the scenes popped out. I was like, okay, no, that's a name I know. So Very true, very true. Um, as far as the cast is concerned, the, the, the big name, the name that almost everybody's going to recognize who has any real interest in uh, Eurotrash films from the 60s and 70s is going to be Craig Hill. He's the uh, the American actor who, uh, when he, st- he started out as a contract star for 20th Century Fox, was in movies like... Uh, Sam Fuller's Fixed Bayonets. He was in Cheaper by the Dozen. He worked with uh, with John Ford. He was in a Kirk Douglas film called Detective Story. 
uh, he was the uh, he was one of the co-leads in uh, the Black Shield of Fall Works in 1954. Uh, did a lot of television work and realized that he was probably going to have a lot more luck sometime in the early 60s if he shifted over to working in Europe. And then he did have a much longer career after that, which involved a lot of spaghetti westerns mm-hmm. primarily, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is what I really remember him from. Right. There's a lot of spaghetti westerns. Yeah. But for us here on uh, the Nashy Cast, mm-hmm. I think we have to, to we have to say, well, you know, he was Inspector Toberman in, yes. assi- in Assignment Terror. Yeah. Uh, and that is, that that's never to be forgotten, especially yeah. uh, with the the weird way in which that character kind of. <laughs> Floats through that movie. It's really, it's, it's very strange. He's yes. got a he's got a love subplot. It's yeah. it's 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 bizarre. Uh, but he also had a really good role in the uh, the uh, the Bloodstained Shadow, which is a uh, a lesser talked about giallo. I don't hear a lot of people talking about that one. He's also in uh, Stigma for uh, Jose Larraz mm-hmm. and uh, did a number of things before he finally uh, before he finally decided to step away from filming and. Uh, What's interesting is that although at the time he made this movie, uh, he was not married to his co-star Teresa Gimpera, who plays his wife in this movie. Right, right, yeah. They did get married about 16 years after the fact, yeah, right. after they made this movie together. This was not the first movie the two of them had made. Teresa Gimpera and uh, Craig Hill uh, met on a on a previous film that they worked on together. So this was just another this particular mm-hmm. movie, Refuge of Fear, was just another film that they worked on together. And then years later, after a lot of uh, shall we say uh, family upheaval and rather a, a rather rough period of uh, her life, uh, in which Miss um, Gimpera uh, lost one of her three sons mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a in a tragic incident involving. Uh, drug addiction they they started dating in the late 80s after her first marriage ended and then uh, after being together for a few years they got married in 1990 and stayed married until Mr. Hill until Craig Hill passed away in uh, I think 2004 uh, 2014 actually 2014 oh my yeah, goodness so they were married about 14 years then thank goodness uh, sadly, uh, Craig Hill. Uh, oh, no longer than that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. They uh, they actually married in 1990. They were married from yeah. 1990 to his death. So actually longer than that. So about 24 mm-hmm. years then. Yeah. The sadly, uh, Mr. Hill's uh, death was eventually caused by Alzheimer's, which means the last couple mm-hmm. of years of his life were were not what anybody would hope they would be. But nevertheless, uh, Miss Gimpura was uh, she wrote uh, an autobiography uh, several years ago. And gave a lot of interviews at the time. It was very straightforward and very honest in her book. And I thought it was kind of fascinating to read excerpts from that book. Uh, I mean, her first marriage broke up because uh, her husband was cheating on her. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that marriage broke up, she was she she was just focused on the children. Things went badly, and she lost uh, she lost her she lost one of her sons. Craig stepped in, and their relationship was kind of forged in. Something that she seemed to think was much more, much more of an impressive thing. It wasn't born out of the, the heat of, of lustful passion. It was born out of a loving care for each other, and I mm-hmm. think that she found that to be a much more of a wonderful thing. Something that she saw as much more of a, of an enlightened way of, of finding a mate in life. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought it was interesting that after both of them had kind of pretty much completely stopped working in films. Uh, they would they would occasionally take a job here and there if somebody mm-hmm. could entice mm-hmm. them to do it, but mm-hmm. they did they had a lot of other businesses, including uh, 
Ms. Gimpura founded a modeling agency and ran that for several years, published a couple of books on beauty. So she had a completely separate career after she decided to not be an actress any longer. And I, she's always said that it, it really helped her to see the see the larger world in a way that she didn't feel like some part of herself had been lost. Mm-hmm. And she was able to, to, to go on and have a different kind of career. And uh, she attributes a lot of that to having someone in her life, namely Craig Hill, who was such a booster of her, someone who mm-hmm. backed her up and was willing to go along with her and do these things with her. Um, which is all wonderful and yeah. fine, except when you watch them playing the married couple in this movie, you're just like, oh, this marriage is awful. <laughs> I was about to say, there's not... This marriage is hideous. <laughs> I'm so glad it wasn't like this in real life for these two people. I'm so glad they were happy together. Because, oh my God, what's on screen is hideous. But um, Well, according to IMDb, it says her last name is actually pronounced Himpara. Himpara? Himpara. Oh, I did not Which, know you know, I mean, okay. I would have never guessed that, so I think we can both be forgiven for that. And I meant to say that earlier, but that that's what it says. It's, it's actually Himpara, so unless that's a typo, uh, perhaps uh, in this particular, maybe that there's a way a G is pronounced with an H in some, in, in particularly where she was born or, or, yeah, or her heritage. Say, so, yeah. so we'll just, anyway, whether we'll remember that or not, I don't know, so don't hold it against us, but we'll just, uh, we're either going to call her Gimpera or Himpera, so. I'm just going to call her Teresa. Teresa, let's call her Teresa. Let's call her Teresa and yeah. be safe. Yes. Anyway. Of course, we're probably mispronouncing that too. <laughs> Teresa. Teresa, it's probably Teresa. Yeah, Teresa. there's no H in Teresa, so. yeah, that's right. Now I'm second-guessing every single <laughs> consonant in the, the woman's name. This is terrible. Anyway, uh, also in the cast list is uh, Fernando Hilbeck. Yes. Oh, yes, folks. If you are unaware, mm-hmm. Fernando Hilbeck is the creepy wet zombie mm-hmm. in Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, yeah. a.k.a. Yeah. Living Dead at Manchester Moore. You know, every zombie movie, there's always the zombie that everybody remembers, the one that stands out more than all the others, and he's definitely the standout zombie from uh, Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. Yeah, but he was in a lot of movies, including Paul Verhoeven's uh, Flesh and Blood. Yeah, he plays the very, very fallen priest in uh, Howl of the Devil. Yes, yes, indeedy do da. Also in uh, Demon Witch Child for... uh, Yeah. For, for Amanda D'Osorio. And it's just he's just one of those guys who turns up in a number of films and you sometimes forget he's around. And he has, he has this may be the biggest role I've ever seen him play in a yeah. film. Yeah. yeah. And um, he's he's quite good at it, but it's just all, it's always one of those things where I'm just waiting for him to, to just silently stalk people while being <laughs> unavoidably and, and mysteriously wet. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, also... I uh, should point out that one of the other actors in this movie, the guy who plays the the young the young man, mm-hmm. the son mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the two characters played by Craig Hill and Pat and uh, Teresa uh, Teresa Himpura, mm-hmm. is uh, an actor named Pedro Maria or I'm sorry Pedro Marie Sanchez. Mm-hmm. He plays the character of Chris, mm-hmm. and my God, this man has an incredible yeah, career. Really does. Holy crap! Major TV and film career after this movie. He done some things before this. Uh, He'd had it. He'd been acting since the age of eight, mm-hmm. and by the time he made this movie, he was either nineteen or twenty, depending on uh, exactly when uh, when it was shot. He not only did a whole lot of stage work; he was primarily a stage actor. He also did a lot of dubbing into Spanish of foreign films. Uh, interestingly enough, he dubbed uh, he dubbed the character of Alex, Malcolm McDowell's character in A Clockwork Orange, <laughs> <Yeah, that's right. laughs> and uh, which I think is great. And he also dubbed uh, Lawrence Fishburne in Apocalypse Now. Those are the two that stood out on yeah. that list of his dubbing credits, where I was just like, "Oh, holy crap, that's amazing!" <laughs> 
But uh, I mean, he he has like a long list of of acting awards for his stage work. He was also a staged uh, a stage director. Uh, we actually saw him uh, in Death of a Hoodlum, the Paul yes, Nashie film. Yeah. And he's uh, he. I'll be honest. If I had just seen this movie cold without doing any looking into the background of this particular actor, I would not have expected him to have had this insane career. But my yeah. lord. Yeah. He's so many. He has so many credits. It's completely insane. And you and you see photographs of him now, and you're like, "Wow, he was a handsome young man, and he mm-hmm. turned into a really handsome middle aged yeah. guy too." He's yeah. like, you can you can see exactly how this guy, as he aged, became one of those guys who would be called upon pretty frequently to play, um, pro, uh, you know, various types of leads. Yeah. Also, uh, just the fact that he did most of his work, the fact, the knowledge that he did so much of his work on the stage is insane. Yeah. Because of how many how many credits he has on screen, it's just like was it was he ever not working? It seems like anyway. But of course, the name uh-huh. that we all I noticed you saved the best. For I, I save this <laughs> save this for last because it's the name that, that stands out. It's like don't get me wrong, a couple of these actors mm. did work in different. Diff, I mean, like yeah, most yeah. of these actors worked in a Paul Nashy film here yeah, or there, right. but. The one that stands out is Patty Shepard. Of, of course. Well, that was the name that when our, our listeners sent that to us, that's the, that's the name that caused us to shove everything off the else off the desk, you know, all the other planned <laughs> projects. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's get to this immediately. Yes, yes. How do we how We do have we a Patty Shepard sighting, yes. <laughs> We've had a Patty Shepard sighting. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a good way to put it, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, Patty Shepard. She, uh, she was the daughter of a colonel in uh, the American Air Force. She was born in South Carolina in 1945, and uh, because she was uh, an Army brat, or an Air Force brat, I guess, Mm -hmm. she lived in Japan and England before landing in Spain at the age of 18 when her father was assigned to uh, an American military base there. After finishing her studies, leaving school, she became known as a model, and then ended up catching the attention of a number of film producers mm-hmm. and ended up in a few small roles here and there and then it just her career just grew from there. She ended up married uh, in the late 60s to actor Manuel de Blas mm-hmm. who yeah. we've seen in a number of films as well. Yes, we have. Uh, and she, uh, well, for our purposes, just like Craig Hill, she yeah. was in Assignment Terror, yeah. uh, the second of the Valdemar Donetsky films and then oh, yeah. because... You can spot a, a great woman who can play a perfect villainess from a mile off when she looks like Patty Shepard. Mm-hmm. She, of course, played Countess Vandessa yeah. in Vampire Women. Well, Werewolf versus the Vampire Women. Or, A.K.A. Werewolf Shadow. Or La Noche de Well Purgis, yeah. or a film known by many other titles in 1971. And uh, from there on, quite honestly, she could have done nothing else for the rest of her life, and that would have been enough of a career for almost anyone. But, of course, her career went on. She made lots of other movies, including some really cool stuff. Uh, I, I love the fact that by the, you get to the 1980s, and she's making uh, she, she's in Slugs. <laughs> she's in Rest in Pieces for Jose Larraz. Oh, man, it's just... I absolutely love the fact that she had a career that went that far, and she's... Wonderful in this movie. This yeah. is in she's a lot always, of ways. Yeah, she's always good. She really gives a great energy to her roles. You know, we uh-huh. uh, I think the last movie we did that had her in it was A Man Called Noon, and she's so much fun in that one too. Yep. So. Yep. There's something just really alive. The ca- yeah. th- there's something about the interaction between some actors and the camera, mm-hmm. and Patty Shepard has whatever that magical thing mm-hmm. is because she always seems to just pop off the screen, even mm-hmm. in a film like this where I feel the director is really not giving. 
not giving the actors as much help as I wish that he could or should or would have. Uh, she is still a standout in this film. Um, don't get me wrong; most of the performances in this film are in, in this film are absolutely fine. Yeah. But the ones that really pop, there's one role that pops because the script builds it into the character that that Craig Hill is playing. Yeah. He does. Yeah. He's 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 quite good, and it's because of the way the character undergoes a change over the mm-hmm. course of the film. Mm-hmm. But for Patty Shepard's character, her character undergoes a change as well, but she's dynamic and she pops she pops off the screen very yeah. effectively from mm. the moment she's on screen to the very last second. Yeah. And um, that's that's a that's a attributable to her qualities as an actress and to just mm. that magical thing that some actors have with the camera. She's very very mm. very good on screen. So. And I have to say I'm, I'm I'm really really impressed by the fact that she and Manuel de Blas were married in 1967 all the way to her death in 2013. And that's yes. really impressive for showbiz couples there. That's not I a agree. common thing. It's always impressive when you see the ones who can last them, go the distance that way. Yeah, it's that, uh, it's that Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn kind of thing where you're just like, wow, yeah, they've been together they just, forever. Yeah. <laughs> forever. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Patty Shepard is always a joy, and she is the reason we decided to just leap headlong into this mm. movie, even though mm. we had very little information about it past it being uh, a film with these particular actors and it being a post-apocalyptic film made mm-hmm. in Spain in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And I think that is where our conversation really should begin. Mm-hmm. The outside radioactivity is not dropping, at least not as rapidly as we expected. Now, as cell chief, I have to be prepared to see that the orders from civil defense are carried out. What's left of civil defense? Beginning with today's meal, all consumption will be cut in half. Give me as much as usual. I prefer to eat a meal every other day. You'll do just like the rest of us. Can I not eat if I don't want to? Do as you want. Hey, kitty. Although this film is Spanish-made, they're working their tails off mm. to make you think this is taking this is taking place in America. Yeah, yeah. America. Yeah, we get our whole opening travelogue in New York. You know, there that's yeah, a complete with a flagpole, flagpole, American <laughs> Just flag. Just in case you didn't catch. It's like, it, hey, yeah. <laughs> hey, 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 this is taking place in America. Yeah. And I have to say, as far as I can tell, all the actors seem to be speaking their lines in English. Mm. Uh, and of course, with Craig Hill, that would be a surprise. It wouldn't be a surprise with Patty Shepard, mm-hmm. but um, that means that the dubbing. Although I think it's impossible to not notice that the film is dubbed. Yeah. I think the dubbing is quite well done. It is. It is. And so I think that the it is one of those things where a lot of films from this period that were dubbed, they weren't necessarily giving half a damn mm-hmm. about it matching the English language dialogue. They didn't really care. It was going to be dubbed into four or five different languages, no matter what. So they didn't really give a shit, but the fact that this one is one of the, this is one of those productions that they were striving to make it appear to be an American film as hard as they could uh, is is kind of interesting and it adds a certain level of I don't know entertainment for me mm-hmm. in a strange oh, way. Oh sure, yeah. Well, I like the way one of the things I like about this film is I like the way some of these the, the way the story elements are unfolded to us and very uh, the yeah. way that it really holds back a lot. Of what's going on and and kind of slowly let you know kind of what's going on for the most part but even that whole intro there all it does is just show 
just New York in its normal everyday life, and right. then suddenly drops us right into the story with the people and without giving any kind of transition or any kind of indication of what's what's going on. Well, that's the thing. The film really doesn't give us any any solid details about the nuclear holocaust. No, that's what no. it has to be. They keep talking yeah. about radiation. Mm-hmm. About, about this but, but nuclear I think, holocaust. But, but I think the first, maybe third of the film, you're maybe even thinking that this is something more to do with uh, like a global warming or like a sun coming close, like one of those films where the earth is heating up. Right. They mention radiation, but it, 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 they don't mention an We're actual... We're talking about temperature, that, yeah, which, is, yeah, temperature which, yeah. which is something that can lead you to believe that, well, are they talking about what I think they're talking about? Or, yeah, 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 yeah. I see what you're saying. Because yeah. they never actually say... It's quite a ways in the film before they finally say war, when they finally start talking about... Who one it yeah. sides it's you know and, it, and it's getting there's information given to us kind of in a sideways manner the, the fact that the two uh older men craig hill and fernando hillback's characters are both in the military they talk about being in the military and as a matter of fact there's a bone of contention at one point about whether or not they're doing the right thing by being where they are instead of having reported to mm-hmm. their uh their mm-hmm. duty stations mm-hmm. which is interesting as well. Yeah. Of course, plays into uh, the way the the final third of the movie works as well. Yeah. But from my research, it turns out that this movie is not generally well regarded. Hmm. Which I'll have some I'll have some words to say about that when we wrap the our discussion of this up. It's kind of odd. It's 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 often I, when I when I look at people talking about this movie. For the past twenty years or so, when I'm when I'm reading excerpts from different uh, from different books that have that have actually reviewed this film, I'm seeing word I'm seeing the word boring. I'm seeing mm-hmm. dull, mm-hmm. and to a large degree, uh, when you hear somebody talk about a dull or boring post nuclear war or post apocalyptic film, mm-hmm. um, that's usually a clue for me. Somebody has fucked something up. Mm-hmm. There is mm-hmm. something has gone afoul in the lands of, of yeah. filmic joy. <laughs> You have messed up a post-apocalyptic film. How in the hell did you make one dull? Yeah. And, and, of course, that's a ridiculous statement for me to make at the outset because post-apocalyptic films can... There, there are a hundred different ways to make a post-apocalyptic sure. film and to, and to expect... Yeah. And this yes. film decided to do it the cheap way. <laughs> I mean, well, just be yeah, honest. You yeah. know, this is this is how you make a post-apocalyptic film with no budget. Yeah, yeah. you have uh, a limited number of actors. Mm-hmm. You have a limited number of sets. Mm-hmm. Um, you only have very few. I'm talking less than seven or eight minutes of your film. Maybe maybe even ten minutes. I would say of your film that are even shot outdoors. Yeah. Uh, this this is uh, it, it's a it's a smart way to construct your post-apocalyptic story because you you're limiting yourself to whatever drama you can generate with your actors mm-hmm. and so the the punch of this is like like I say not every post-apocalyptic film needs to you know be Mad Max right it, yeah, it, it can't absolutely. be that because yeah. if that's all those the, all those things are then suddenly every movie that involves a cop has to become like a, a big action you know, series of action set pieces, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and and that's that's a ridiculous idea. Mm-hmm. That's that's not the kind of thing mm-hmm. that we should be looking for. But when I read these reviews of, of people talking about this movie, I have the feeling that a lot of them are going, "Oh, it's post it's a post apocalyptic tale." Mm-hmm. I am expecting something along the lines of the stuff that you would get from the '80s post apocalyptic films. Mm-hmm. And so. That's not what this is. This right. is much more in line with, as you were alluding to, movies that were made in the 60s. Things mm-hmm. like uh, The Day the Earth Caught Fire. Yeah, yeah. Movies like that where you're dealing with a, an apocalyptic scenario. In that case, and by, by the way, if you've never seen The Day the Earth Caught Fire, let me highly recommend that yeah. Val Guest film. It's a really brilliant movie. That. Yeah. I but, actually just saw it for the first time like about a year ago. I mean, oh, it's, really? It's, yeah, it was, it was actually, I had heard about it all 
my life and you know over years and years and planned on seeing it and once i got around to it I was like man i wish i hadn't waited this long to you know wish I, this is what a good movie it's fantastic really well movie. Movie. fantastic film yeah but it's it, it's much more in the vein of that mm-hmm. kind of story which is a slow burn mm-hmm. <laughs> Not, no, well, yeah, okay good no, like what oh, you did there <laughs> i did oh, didn't mean to do that i guess who anyway a slow burn story about a burning earth mm-hmm. uh that that allows you to get to know the characters involved and that's where the real story is the story is in the mm-hmm. drama about characters dealing with the post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. scenario or the mm-hmm. the possible post-apocalyptic scenario that they're involved in mm-hmm. and that's what the movie's about is those human interactions and the and the re, and the, the ways in which these people are dealing with those problems so knowing now that most of the reviews that I caught up with and I read about a dozen of them do all seem to be the type of review that would be reflected in someone expecting something from this movie that yeah. is not is not even in 1974 is not even something they would be even thinking about providing. This is yeah. not the kind of movie it's set up to be. Right. It's much more along the lines of a movie that was made right around the same period of time in Spain as well, which we've already mentioned, which is the People Who Own the Dark. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of. A very similar scenario here. It's not a yeah. It, it, Maybe it, just it, a slightly bigger budget, but not by a whole lot. You know, slightly bigger budget, a, a little more, bit more, a little bit more ambitious, more extras, but not a whole lot more. You know, right, still keeps, right, right. You know. And while while I'll say right now that I think People Along the Dark is a better movie than Refuge of mm-hmm. Fear, mm-hmm. it's not hard to see that the ideas that are kind of interlaced and form the foundations of both of those movies are extremely similar. I mean, yeah. these were common ideas in cinema at the time. They were, they were of course, major ideas in, in even larger budget Hollywood features of the, of the period as well. I mean, you can look back to things like Omega Man at, at the beginning of the decade, mm-hmm. and you can see where some enterprising producer yeah. <laughs> would think to himself, if I get some writer who I could pay cheaply enough to give me a scenario similar to this, I bet I could make some of that sweet, sweet American dinero <laughs> by having some kind of similar post-apocalyptic tale being told on a much yeah. lower budget. Well, while, uh, people, while People Who Own the Dark, as you said, is the better film, this film is is um, maybe the better, if you're looking for a character study, this film is, is even more of that than People Who Own the Dark, whereas People yeah. Who Own the Dark do yeah. have specific characters who undergo some changes and there's tensions, examining the tensions of how people react to this scenario this world and how they interact with each other but people who own the dark does have the added thing of of everybody else going blind and the and the characters trying to venture out and and having well, a little having, bit having more to be, of it. having to deal with those poor blind yeah. people as well yeah. yeah whereas whereas right whereas this film it's really much more focused on strictly the characters how they deal with the situation how they deal with each other and their situation doesn't even really become Threatening to each other, suspenseful until we get to like the final act of the film. For the most part, yeah. it is them just coexisting and just kind of a slow, slow burn again. You slow know, of, of their their interactions with each other and those building tensions and how they're each coping or not coping, as it were, with what's going on. Yeah, in a lot of cases, not coping. Yeah, <laughs> not coping very well at all. And mostly, really, the biggest problem is the isolation and the just being in each other's face. The same people every day, the same routines. You know, and it's it's the kind of things that almost anybody. 
<clears throat> who might have gone through the <clears throat> COVID-19 era <laughs> might have run into if you're right. cooped up in a house and you have mm-hmm. limited limited access to you know the, your your large circle of friends and maybe you're only living with oh, one other person or mm-hmm. uh, in some cases cats. Mm-hmm. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not pointing my finger at anybody, but <laughs> hey, hey, <laughs> my cats. Uh, my, I probably got on their nerves, but I was very happy to have my cat. <laughs> I'm very happy to have my cats cats around. They're probably ready for hey the the the, the lone pig needs to go back to work and all we need are you know but <laughs> he's really wearing on us but is he got to be here all the time? Really? <laughs> I mean, damn, yeah, he geez. used to leave and he was I know, gone we could for turn hours. on the, we could turn on the TV and watch whatever we watch Animal to Planet all day and yeah asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have the I, this is all a big kind of lead, lead up to me just saying that I like post-apocalyptic films a lot yeah. and I know that I know that my love of that kind of thing grows out of my love of th- this kind of story both on the page in mm. comic books and born out of my fascination for the Mad Max movies of the 80s and of course the the numerous and sundry rip-offs of the Mad Max films mm-hmm. that were also made in the 80s as well mm. so my love of it is not limited to those kind of action-packed extravaganzas of that type they that that was the genesis probably mm-hmm. that and the fact that I'd already read a lot of this kind of mm-hmm. of fiction mm-hmm. growing up and mm-hmm. really enjoyed this kind of stuff and I think that to the to a degree to a degree that I'd not really considered I think that post apocalyptic fiction more and more is becoming something that is just incredibly common in the YA the young adult uh, novels that have been like the biggest hits over the past twenty five thirty years yeah. it's kind of amazing I think. <laughs> More and more, post-apocalyptic stories are becoming a standard that kids who really love to read are growing up with as kind of like their bedrock stories, the kinds Mm -hmm. of things that set them on the path of enjoying certain types of fiction. And I'm not just talking about... I, I, well, well, look at what the most popular video games are, too. <laughs> well, I'm just talk, I'm talking about the, the, the... You can just look at the, the, the YA novels that essentially have been adapted even into film, so mm-hmm. therefore giving them an even larger audience. You talk, you talk about the Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. You talk about uh, things like the Maze Runner, stuff like this. And These are all post-apocalyptic stories. Yeah. And there's more and more of those than you would think. I did a little quick search, and I knew about a few of them that I have, you know, I've never read, but at the same time, <laughs> they've yet to make the leap to film and so they don't really have any they don't have any cachet with me because I'm not experienced them because I'm not going to seek out a, a, mm-hmm. a YA series of novels because it's just not it's not mm-hmm. something that just leaps to mind for me to read I have yeah. believe me I've got way too many other things to read mm-hmm. but at the same time the fact that there are so many of them they're so yeah. popular means that that form that mm-hmm. genre or I think we <laughs> here's another thing I think post-apocalyptic fiction Used to be something I would have been comfortable calling a subgenre. Now I think it's just a genre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it is so large that you just it might can, as well yeah. stack it it's next not, yeah. to. There's like science fiction and then there's post-apocalyptic yeah. fiction. Whereas I used to think of post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic fiction as a subset of science fiction. It's like yeah. it's just so huge now, and it's much larger than I had even anticipated when I started looking around. So. The fact that these stories, these types of stories, are so incredibly common now and incredibly popular and seem to have only grown in popularity over the past few decades, there's that tells me that there's something about this type of story that means that I'm not the only one who feels so incredibly drawn to these stories. And I think that it really was the popular the popularity of the Road Warriors slash Mad Max 2 
in the early 80s that really popped the top culturally mm-hmm. for the entire world mm-hmm. to kind of let that freak flag fly. And it's almost like one of those things where you didn't know you loved it until you had it in front of you. Yeah. You know, uh, until you had that until you had that taste in mm-hmm. your mouth, you didn't mm-hmm. realize just how wonderful and addictive it might be. And to a degree, I'm kind of, uh, there's a part of me that wonders if that was a good thing <laughs> if, if for society. Is it a good thing for us to obsess so completely over the idea of an apocalyptic ending to our society so that we all have to live in the, in the scrabbled radioactive remains of what, what might be possible to uh, eat next, whether it be human, cat, or, you know, <laughs> chewed up porcelain? I don't know. There's this part of me that wonders, there, there are all these societal questions that just immediately pop to mind about whether it's healthy to be so fascinated by those ideas or whether it is the opposite, that it is insanely healthy to stare those kinds of fears in the face and therefore use those fictional examinations of the way people react in such extreme circumstances to help you see your way through well, that next encounter with that idiot at work, you know, yeah. just, whatever, whatever well, it may be. Yeah, well, I thought always thought it was fascinating that after the terrorist attacks on the, the World Trade Center, you would think that you would have thought that the sight of you know a, a attack on that scale and death on that scale and the sight of two buildings like that, you know, that devastation, yeah. you'd have thought that would have caught, put a halt, or at least for a while on this type of imagery and these type of stories and this kind of wanton destruction yeah. in, in our arts and cinema. Instead, it did the exact opposite. There was this incredible flurry of world-destroying films that came on the heels of that, which may point to your latter explanation that people, that we need that to deal with, to cope with, to to heal as a way of healing from something like that or as a way of as you see as a way it, of is wrapping to see our it, minds around the idea maybe to see it portrayed in make-believe on screen yeah, was a way yeah. of coping with with the reality of it happening in, in real life but i just always surprised me that that there was that that it, it did the exact opposite of what i thought it would that it just gave this whole burst you know to this to to all these apocalyptic films True. and all these disaster True. these disaster films it was like the suddenly the disaster the Irwin Allen disaster film was suddenly reborn again on the heels of it kind of, of supercharged of, yeah, yeah 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 that's true i hadn't thought about it in those terms but it, I, I just looked upon it I, I just looked upon it as this this continuing uh, thread of post apocalyptic stories or stories in which uh, those types of nearly world-ending, mm-hmm. you know, city-destroying kinds mm-hmm. of uh, attacks, mm-hmm. or uh, in some cases accidents, were just part of the the narrative being told, but seen on a through line of the, that being an element of of uh, that being like its own its own genre, an element yeah. of the the number the types of stories being told. There was just another you know uh, mm-hmm. another card in the deck, another mm-hmm. you know another flavor on the on the menu essentially. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, like I say, I think it, it can be fun to worry about whether or not it's uh, a good thing to stare that kind of thing in the face yeah. on such a regular basis, or whether it is almost necessary mm-hmm. to have the kind of outlet where you're examining those dark kinds of scenarios those ideas that crop up when you start thinking down those roads um, and of course you know you, I think as long as you're approaching it with a with the right sensibility with a, a certain dark humor if not really just gallows humor about some of the ideas that would be involved in something like this especially in some of the things we'll discuss in the, in the plot of this film here in a moment it becomes a question of 
it probably being I fall on the side of it being a healthy thing mm. because anything that allows you to uh, examine yourself and examine your own ways of looking at the world and looking at how you might react in certain situations, extreme situations, I think those are those are good because the unexamined life is not worth living. Mm, right, <laughs> to make it to make right, a larger right, quote, sure, that's yeah, yeah. completely out of place here, <laughs> but. By examining these ideas in relation to what this movie does, what Refuge of Fear focuses on because of the fact that it's not a large budget movie, it focuses on these interpersonal relationships and the strains Mm -hmm. that are placed on these relationships as the story goes along. It puts you in the mind of identifying at certain times. This movie does a pretty good job with this, and I'm, I'm kind of happy to be able to say this. This film does put you in the position where your sympathies over the course of the story, shift. Yeah, yeah. Where your thoughts about uh, Patty Shepard's character mm-hmm. alter as the story goes on. Your mm-hmm. thoughts about the Fernando Hillback character alter on a on a much smaller scale. Yeah, yeah. And the Craig Hill character mm-hmm. definitely alter from one end to this, one end yeah. of the spectrum to the other. And yeah. I think that that's a, that's a success of the script mm-hmm. for this film that I I want to I want to uh, I want to give kudos to the yeah. to that aspect of this story uh, aspect of this film I should say because mm-hmm. I think that the way they build the uh, arc of these especially the the main two characters I think is absolutely excellent and I also do love the fact that when the movie begins I I don't think it's possible in the first forty five minutes of this movie to know who are going to be the quote-unquote like main characters of this story that you're going to yeah. focus on in the yeah. latter half of the film. Yeah. And I think that that is pretty sharply played as well. I was really impressed because the I honestly thought the Chris character was going to be a, a focus, especially mm-hmm. after a certain, certain plot point mm-hmm. takes place, mm-hmm. after a certain turn, I thought, ah, well, we're going to have this particular young character involved with the Patty Shepard character, mm-hmm. and this is going to play out as some kind of hybrid family unit as we move forward. And the movie, the movie completely submarines that in a very interesting way in a scene that I think is fascinating. But, but I tell you what, let's, 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 uh, let's back up for a second and we'll, uh, we'll take a kind of, uh, kind of a, a, a simplified walk through the, the synopsis of this film. How do you feel? I don't know. Sleeping makes the time pass quicker. But I'm tired of staying in bed. Arthur took his sleeping pills and is sleeping like a log. I feel as though I was sleeping with a corpse. I can't stand it. And suppose we were all corpses. Have you stopped to think we all might be dead? The things you think of. They're not my ideas. They're Sheridan's. And he was right. Why should we be alive? Shut up. Are you trying to frighten me? We're young and we're alive. Really? Okay. Uh, the film starts and we are completely inside. The, the vast majority of this movie starts and ends and begins. <laughs> Let, me start again. Let me start again. I feel like a moron here, but the most mm. of the movie takes place where the movie starts. After a few initial setup shot shots making sure that we're aware that this is the U.S. of A. Mm-hmm. We're in what appears at first to be an apartment where mm-hmm. two families are living for some reason 
and they're not. I mean, they were, they're just not telling us exactly why. Right. And it really, they go out of their way to make us feel like, for whatever reason, they're staying here and uh, they've been here a while. And it's only over the next, the course of the next twenty or so minutes that you realize, oh, this is an underground bunker, mm-hmm. uh, to the point where they, they've even got like a fake window where it looks like you can yeah. look outside, mm-hmm. and one of the characters at a at a certain point just freaks out and like rips down the the fake back the fake background yeah. that's tacked to the wall. Which I love that scene because yeah. because most you know movies do this to us all the time, put up fake windows, fake yep. backgrounds, and stuff. And so I love the fact that it's almost like breaking the fourth wall in a way. In the way when that pulls that down. It's sort of like, yeah, we do this trickery to you all the time, and here we're here we're actually it's part of the story this time. And it's a, a smart way for a film of this budget to play into the restrictions that are put on them yeah. by the fact that this is a very set bound movie for the yeah. most part. Like this is like eighty five percent a set bound feature mm-hmm. where you're in this one location, and there are multiple rooms. Don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it's a place where you are for the almost the entire film, and it's like once you've got it established. Okay, mm-hmm. we know what it looks like. It looks like the interior of just about any house built in the 1970s. This looks, yeah. like, I mean, all of the the furnishings, the 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 paintings hanging on the wall, everything. It's made to look like someone has tried to replicate a mm-hmm. house in an underground. Bunker. A very 70s house. <laughs> this is a, this is some serious 70s architecture yeah, going. Yeah, very, very much. And, and I even love the uh, you know like the lower level when you get down uh-huh. the stairs to the lower level. Uh-huh. The entrance into that little storage room is like is a big round. It's a, yeah. it's a big round doorway. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like ah hobbit hole. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a hobbit door. Uh, but <laughs> things we do we do figure out or we are shown that there's a there's an elevator a red ele- I love the fact that the elevator is red that it goes up to the surface. And uh, also down to the basement, this place has a, a miniature kind of mortuary where yeah. they can store dead bodies yeah. if they need to. And we are let in on the fact that uh, of the people who are here, we've got five characters. Yeah. We've got Craig Hill, who plays a character named Robert. His wife, Margie, who's played by uh, Teresa Himpera. Himpera. Uh, their teenage son, Chris, which is uh, Pedro Ma- uh, Marie Sanchez. Mm. And he's actually her son, but not Robert's but not son. He's Robert's, a son right. from a previous marriage. So, yeah, Robert is, is uh, his yeah. stepfather. Um, Robert's army pal, Arthur, who's uh, played by Fernando Hilbeck, and his wife, Carol, who's played by Patty Shepard. And who's considerably younger, I think. That's part of the, I think, part of that we're yeah. supposed to think the de- problems with some of the dynamics in their marriage is that they're probably, a, that there's a definite age difference there. I think so. Oh, speaking of age differences, I guess real quick, I was just about, I was ready to call bullshit on the the idea of Teresa Himpera being uh, the mother of Chris, you know, being, being oh. the, the age of, because I say, I, I, when I first saw him, I thought, there's no way she's old enough to be his mom. Turns out, She's 18 years older than the actress, 18 years older than the actor there. So she she absolutely was uh, old enough to be his, his mother. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, that's I true. look into the two of them, I didn't think that she was old enough to... to well, to Miss, Miss Impero is a beautiful lady. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I see, yeah, she, yeah, she, she had aged a very well. She was a, a gorgeous lady uh-huh. her entire life, as far as I can tell. And it's mm. just one of those things where you're just like, yeah, I understand. Yeah. You look at her on screen and you think... Hey, <laughs> she's probably only twenty five or oh, she's not. Okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, we did leave out the fact that there is also a Siamese cat mm-hmm. and a uh, a little yellow bird in a cage that yes. they keep around. And of course, the reason that bird is around is mm-hmm. for the reason that you would think, which yeah. would be, huh? These are the creatures that would succumb first to any leaking radiation that mm-hmm. might actually be penetrating this mm-hmm. underground bunker. Now, the, and the cat. 
cat's name to show you how long they took to name this cat. His cat's name is apparently Pussy. So uh, so they worked a long <laughs> time on coming up with a name for their cat there. Well, there's a part of me that wonders about that because that's the kind of name you'd give to a cat if you didn't want to get attached. Yeah, that's what I was thinking yeah. too. Is they just they're just like it's like they might as well call it a kitty or something. They're just like <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a certain yeah. You're right. They're they're not getting too attached to the old cat there. Well, as the movie begins, it's clear that uh, supplies are, are beginning to run short. They've been there a while. Tensions are on the rise, and uh, there's been a lot of wear and tear on everybody to the point where uh, the Carol character, played by Patty Shepard, doesn't really want to come out of the, her bedroom very often. She right. She's acting as if she's like kind of regularly feigning headaches or mm-hmm. just not feeling up to it to avoid the uh, the group meals that they all have, the three meals they have each day. She's just kind of wanting to like not be around people that she's been around for a very long period of time now. She's the one that's least playing along with the Craig Hill's character uh, with his his idea of his his wanting to establish normalcy. You know, everything yeah. has to be done to establish this veneer of normalcy. She's the one who's least willing to play along with that. Now, we never get a firm answer that I can remember for how long they've been down there, but it has been a while. We're mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. many weeks at this point. Mm-hmm. And the son, uh, the, the, the son, Chris, ends up, he's spending a lot of his time with their shortwave radio uh, trying to stay in contact with other pockets of survivors around the world to, to just compare notes uh, see who's gleaned any uh, any information because they might be closer to a, a military base or to yeah. a, a source of, uh, of some kind of official information. And as the movie begins, you realize that he's kind of become obsessed to the point where he's he seems to be spending almost an unhealthy amount of time mm-hmm. hooked into that radio trying to reach these other pockets of people to get as much information as possible. What it is is everybody acknowledges that they're playing a waiting game here. They're just trying to wait mm-hmm. long enough for radiation levels outside to drop to a certain point so that they can uh, get the all clear mm-hmm. and venture back out into the world. As we're being introduced to all this information, uh, remember I told you about the mortuary downstairs? Turns out that there had been a sixth person yep. who was down there with them mm-hmm. who uh, <clears throat> is no longer alive and uh, turns out that... Uh, he went a little crazy, a little early, mm-hmm. and maybe everybody else has kind of followed along in his wake. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, later on, the movie actually shows us the moment at which that they, the moment they've alluded to, which is the moment when they realize they're going to have to. They apparently been sedating this other character for quite some time, mm-hmm. and then he tries to set fire to the entire bunker, and they yeah. realize that this is just we can't keep doing this, and so they actually had to kill him. Yeah. Uh, which adds a dynamic to this that plays out over the course of this, which is another one of those moments of tension, one of those cords of tension that is running through everybody in this yeah. that you can feel as an undercurrent in almost everything that's going on. And there's also that knowledge that for all the rest of them, if they step out of line, we now have a template for how if you go too far out of line, if you start acting a little crazy, the rest of them might decide you're a little too dangerous to be here now. Yeah. So that's interesting. That keeps things that that, that that's another point of interest that I think that uh, the movie, once again, as a script, has kind of smartly built into its scenario. Mm-hmm. Now, because Robert, that's the Craig Hill character, paid to have the shelter built to begin with, and that it's apparently in his backyard, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's where the thing is. 
he kind of feels licensed to be a, a bit of a control freak. And uh, he, the exact words I was going to use. Yeah, really a control. Yeah, well, exactly. he, well, he holds the key to the medicine cabinet. That should tell you something right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he seems to split his time between uh, playing billiards with uh, Arthur and doing an inventory on supplies to make sure no one's taking more than their share. Yeah. Also, keeping that lock and key on everything. Yeah. Including the medicine cabinet. And it becomes clear right from the beginning that Arthur is trying to make sure he gets more sedatives on a regular basis to knock himself out at night, to make himself sleep. Yeah. So the stress, that's how the stress is showing up for the Arthur character, the Fernando Hillback character. Now, likely because of his military training, Robert expects everyone else to show a level of discipline that Mm -hmm. really, Mm -hmm. even if they were doing it at the beginning of this, Mm -hmm. has started to fall apart as this film begins. Yeah. Yeah. This is illustrated very interestingly uh, near the beginning of the film when uh, when Patty Shepard comes to the table for for a meal, uh, dressed in a fairly fairly re- revealing outfit, he forces her to go and put something else on. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, his wife character, played by Miss Hempira, mm-hmm. uh, generally just uh, drinks a yeah, lot more than she should. With, self-medicates with yeah, alcohol. that's a good way to put it. Yeah. She drinks and she knits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of a kind of an odd take on the drinking and knowing things. She yeah, just drinks yeah, and I drinks. Knits. That's what I do. I drink and I knit things. Yeah. <laughs> there was a certain point where she was yeah. knitting, and I was looking at the the big mass of knitting that she was doing there, and I was like, "Is she knitting an octopus a sweater? What the <laughs> hell is going on here?" Uh, nevertheless, Chris, while while playing on the radio, seems to kind of be a little uh, bent out of shape because. He was not able to uh, bring along his girlfriend hmm. when they uh, when they uh, realized they needed to get down to the bunker. And one of the reasons he's kind of obsessed with the radio is he's kind of uh, hoping to get get some news about her uh, because, as far as he knows, she's still up on the surface. And the thing about uh, the booze in this place is they appear really well stocked with alcohol. Yeah, because <laughs> they were, yeah. We we have a certain scene in the movie where uh, everybody's getting a little tipsy yeah. to the point where Patty Shepard's character has uh, gotten herself out there and uh, actually kind of is drunk enough to perform a strip tease yeah. to to the delight of yeah. all the other adults there. Even her husband is having a good time with the fact that his wife is mm. is doing a strip tease in front of everybody else. But and that then, strip tease is directed very much at one person. Yeah, very <laughs> much directed at Chris, who, yeah. let's be honest, yeah. Chris is a very handsome young man, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's clear that uh, with her husband mm-hmm. doping himself up at night so that right. he can sleep, right. she's not only bored, mm-hmm. younger than her, her husband in the first place, but not too far away from thinking that Chris might be a nice, uh, mm-hmm. a nice addition to her life. Mm-hmm. And so eventually they do start having sex with each other, and I have to say... The fact that the the first time they have sex with each other, and she kind of tries to to kind of push Chris off. Kind of saying that she's realized she's been messing with him more than she should have, and that she was, yeah. Maybe this teasing has gone too far, and now I'm in a position where I probably... And and, and at first, she pushes him off, and he he seems willing to, to not go any further with it, but then leans back in, and she goes along with it and they end up having their first sexual encounter in the same bed with her zonked out husband which I think which is one of those moments where you're just like it's the 70s it's 
it's it's wow. I'm 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 kind of impressed. <laughs> uh, okay, I have to say one thing more here. One thing here, just because this is something else that you'd only see in the '70s, but I, I had to I had to just make a comment on uh, <clears throat> Carol Patty Shepard's Shepard's character on uh, her good reading taste because uh, early in the film, from when we see her sprawled out in her bed, you know, where she's avoiding the meal and just kind of you know zonking out and and avoiding everybody by yeah. pretending to be asleep. The magazine that's there at her feet in bed is a copy oh, of Nightmare yeah. Skywald. Uh, it's not, yeah. And as I forgot I, to bring that up. Yeah, you know, everyone who's listened to this show for a long time knows how much I love the Skywald magazines and how I'm often saying that, you know, comparing, drawing the contrast, comparisons between 70s European horror films, Spanish horror films, and the Skywald magazines, like uh, which were creepy, uh, Psycho, and Nightmare. Uh, the way that not, that's creepy, um, Psycho, Nightmare, and Scream. Thank you. Yeah. They uh, that they were both kind of. I think tapping into the same zeitgeist around the same time. I agree. So here we actually have a copy of Nightmare. It's Nightmare Number Ten with a cover by the great Ken Kelly, uh, and and uh, I will say my older brother actually has a copy of this magazine signed by Mr. Ken Kelly. Oh, nice. Yeah. But anyway, so I liked Carol immediately. She became my favorite character. I was like, we've got the, we we've got the same reading taste. Well, something I'm very curious about with the with the knowledge of which issue of Nightmare that is is was there a post apocalyptic story in that issue? You know, I went back and checked on that, and not really specifically that I could see. Oh, no, okay. like that would have you're right. That would have been great. I can think of several Skywald stories that would have fit perfectly in that, but none of them were in this particular issue. So, <laughs> <laughs> I really did wonder about that. But yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. The, the the fact that that's one of the one of the many magazines down there. First of all, uh, I'm sure that that's there. For possibly two reasons. One, oh, it's an American magazine. Yeah, right. Yeah, right it adds right, it adds yeah, to right, the yeah. the versatility of this trying mm-hmm. to you know this mm-hmm. tr- supposedly taking place somewhere in the, in the United States. And also, maybe someone was aware. It's like, well, we can't put like a famous monsters there. Yeah. That's a little too mm-hmm. on the nose. Yeah. So maybe if we go with something like this. Yeah. And the fact that it's nightmare. Yeah. The 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 name nightmare is prominent. And it's on the bed, yeah. and it's it's like maybe that maybe that maybe that plays into it. But I, yeah. for whatever reason, that little that little bit of set dressing is nice. There literally is a Skywalk magazine. I can't remember which title it was, but there is much one that does have a world exploding on the front. It would have been something if they used, <laughs> used that one. <laughs> but I suspect it was just whatever issue was whatever was, they was happened current, to, was at the current news with the newsstand there. So yep, yep. Uh, unless unless somebody knows differently, yeah. Mm. Well, with the the food, water, and uh, strangely enough, and this is true because this is a closed environment, mm. even the oxygen is starting to be in short supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, right 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 about this right about this time, uh, Carol and Chris have been carrying on for a little while, and it turns out that uh, Carol finds out that she's pregnant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And awkward, her, yeah. Yeah, very awkward in that her husband knows it can't be him because yeah. he's kind of <laughs> given up yeah. on that aspect uh, of life. Uh-huh. And uh, that's when things go from bad to worse. So cabin fever is starting to set in. Uh, people are starting to kind of abuse their uh, food privileges when they can weasel their way into the mm-hmm. into the pantry where all the where all the food is stored. Personal personal relationships are starting to, to kind of fray. Uh, and then we have added to this the uh, adding to all of this that there's the occasional bit of seismic activity, a little bit of an earthquake that starts creating cracks in the shelter's foundations, causing it to shift. And uh, starts to make everybody worry a little bit about this. Maybe letting in uh, more radiation than they can necessarily accept as a as a safety uh, as as a way of safely thinking that they could survive this. Um, turns out things at this point start to happen, and the first 
odd thing that makes you start to think that something bad is on the horizon starts small, like you might expect, the cat turns up dead. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, he does, because you knew he was going to, because he's a, he's a cat in a genre film. He's a pet in a genre <laughs> film. You, you heard my, you know, everybody knows my rant before about, that. I'll, I'll say it again, that pets are the red shirts of genre, genre films. <laughs> True. Horror, sci-fi, or thrillers there. If there's a family pet, you know it's meat. Uh, for some, it's just a question of how long will it survive before either the monster or the you know, the roving packs of psycho killers or, you know, or, or something else. will say. Yeah, exactly. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll kill it. So I have to, I have to give, uh, have to give old pussy the, uh, the uh, credit for actually made it to the midpoint of the film, which is, uh, which yeah. is further than they usually do. Before she's dead and skinned and put in the refrigerator. Yes. <laughs> because, hey. Gotta eat. Might, yeah. Gotta eat one way or another, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, uh, this is also the point where we start to realize that Craig Hill's character, Robert's, also sneaking down to the mortuary mm. and uh, starting to cannibalize yeah. the corpse down there. Yeah. And he starts to serve that meat to the others. This is, you know, this is, think of it as hamburger helper. He's just trying to extend the life <laughs> yeah. of the amount of food that we have here. It's like, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're going to have to go on half rations here. And maybe if we just start eating the, that dead guy down there, <laughs> it'll help out, right? <laughs> Whew. Well, at some point, Things get so bad that our, our poor buddy Chris freaks out a little bit and decides, fuck it, and he leaves the shelter. He takes mm-hmm. the elevator to the surface mm-hmm. and runs around. Uh, I can't. The, the movie doesn't really tell us what this house is that he goes into, but there's a part of I, I think right. that this probably was the house of his girlfriend and his right. girlfriend's family. That's and, what it and looks And the like. only really clue that is because there's the same picture that's in this house right. that he has had in his room. That's the only thing when Q clues us in right. that this is that this may be where this Because is. of course there's no dialogue. Right. All of this is all of the acting is just being is just him doing his doing physical acting. There's no dialogue. Mm-hmm. There's no one to talk to. He's not mm-hmm. you know, he's not ranting or raving like some right. kind of crazy person. So we're all we're just left to go by visual clues and that's what this appears to be. Mm-hmm. And of course all the people inside the house are dead. And they're charred corpses, which makes me think that this, maybe they're hinting toward the idea of a neutron bomb. Yeah, yeah. Because and all the structures are still are standing. Are still standing, yeah. yeah, which would have been very topical at that time. So it's very, very much so. But, uh, and now the three bodies he finds, which are two lying on a bed and one hanging, none of them appear to be that of a female. Uh, right. I mean, as far as that would be a single female. So it leaves you wondering if it makes you think that none of these bodies he finds are necessarily those of, of this former, of this girl he knew. You know, yeah, maybe yeah. she's somewhere still out there. Now, what do you think about the let's call let's call it the end of this segment when Chris goes up to the surface, um, folks? We're going to uh, we're going to spoil this one aspect of the story, but we're not going to spoil the the last third of the film. Yeah. This film is not easy to find, by the way. Or no. I mean, it, I mean, it is. It's not easy. It's, there's no good copy of it as far as watchable. Well, no. I mean, this is a watchable copy. It's from a VHS tape. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And it, which means that you can find it out there if you know where to look. Right. And uh, I am going to. I, mean, I will say right out front that I do. Th- I do recommend seeking it out if you're interested in this kind of sure, cinema. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that it, that there's uh, plenty worthwhile in this mm-hmm. movie to to watch. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why I think we're not going to spoil the final part of it. But we will spoil this. The Chris character, the the young, the, the teenage boy. Uh, he does die after going to the surface, which is kind of a foregone conclusion once he's up there and he sees what's going on. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was fascinating how they play that entire segment, and I wondered what you thought about it because I was absolutely fascinated. I backed up and watched it twice. They 
it's it's much more subtle mm-hmm. than a film of this type you would think because I would think that what would happen is that he would he would just be so distraught that he would he would kill himself or he would try to go back down and die down down back back down in the bunker but he would have absorbed so much radiation that he would have died even after returning but what it is is we have him running down the street distraught crying mm-hmm. upset and we start to see that his skin is starting to be red and it's starting to flake off of him and it's it's obvious that the radiation is so intense that it's killing him very quickly. Mm-hmm. And then we don't see him die. Right. We cut right. away from, they cut away from that almost mm-hmm. as if they're just, you know, they're not willing to show that to us, which kind of leads you to believe especially in a movie like this where you think, oh well there's that he is going to show up downstairs. We are he is going to show back up down, come down the elevator or something like that and he's going to be like a corpse or whatever mm-hmm. is or he's going to be in such <coughs> a horrible shape that it'll be almost monstrous. But the movie doesn't pull that. Yeah. I wonder what you thought of that. Yeah, I I it was more effective to me the second time around because of the uh, the second time on rewatch because the first time through because of the print being so bad it wasn't as obvious what was happening to him at the very last to me as it was the second time through then I was finally able to really see more of what you're talking about with yeah, his face yeah. and all because the, the first print's time, not that great yeah. yeah I think we'd see it better in a better print which hopefully will be exist someday but uh, um, I, I thought the whole sequence was very interesting just because the whole thing wondering you know this house he goes to who what's the story behind it we never really know fully exactly why he goes there or who these people like were say, the, the big clue does the real the cl- real clue is that photograph that same photograph yeah. right but uh, so once I realized the second time around what was really happening to him, you know, is because I think also the reason they play the scene that way is because I think that there's still at that point the possibility that everything is fine outside, that they've been, you know, because we've seen that kind of film before, too. The question of are yeah. we being misled? What's really happening out there? I, and I, I was wondering if he's going to get out there and find out that everything is okay that they could have come out a long time ago that they're being lied to or that they don't know the full or they're just story. not giving the information yeah. exactly so I, I thought that so I, I, I like I liked it in that respect you know I thought that was interesting that way and, and, and kind of an interesting choice really to show like you know to kind of suggest what happens to him without really showing him fully die I did love the visual gag of the billboard there where he looks up at the billboard where it's uh, some sort of exterminating it says worldwide yes. exterminating on there I thought yeah. and that was obviously just a billboard that already existed they wouldn't have had the budget I don't think to have set up I think Probably it was not. one that they just found and like oh that's perfect you know which is great it was a <laughs> it's, it's, it's guerrilla filmmaking I would yeah, expect yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> well as we said we're not going to spoil the latter part of this film but just uh, just let, let's let's just say that um the movie does come down to there only being two characters left, and it kind of becomes a cat-and-mouse game between those two characters. And um, we've already alluded earlier in this conversation about how uh, the movie kind of pulls a 180 on two different characters in the movie, and that would be the Craig Hill character and the character played by Patty Shepard. Hmm. And uh, let's just say that uh, your, your opinions of those characters change over the course of the film, and that it's pretty damned interesting what the movie is able to accomplish Mm -hmm. even as and now I'm going to uh, swing around and start my complaints about this movie Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is a movie that is only directed effectively part of the time it is very much directed as if they were in a rush Mm -hmm. or the template for shooting every scene was how would this be shot for television? Mm. Um, it's flat. Uh, it's very. It's difficult to tell from the version of this film that we have um, 
how uh, interesting the lighting may or may not be, but yeah. it's not very. From what I can tell, it's pretty much flat lighting. Mm-hmm. Get every you know, get everything lit. Very much TV lighting. Very much uh, there's there, there's very little dynamic that is being done as a as a direct as directorial choices are possible within this storyline and within this structure. All of the stuff that I like about this movie boil down to the cast doing good jobs mm-hmm. and the script being mm-hmm. better than it really needs to be mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. lot of the time. Mm-hmm. The direction is where I think this movie kind of falls down. Mm-hmm. And so when I see people, and I, I, I can definitely see this, having gone through this movie a couple of times now, I can say at about the midway point, there is a certain, and, and this is probably intentional to a degree, but you start to feel as if there's not a lot of forward momentum, as if we're as as if we're just watching the clock tick by as this story goes on. And I think some of that is intentional because the movie's trying to get across the mood these characters start with once we're in this scenario, which is that they're really feeling a sense of ennui. They're really starting to feel as if every day is exactly the same, and they're yeah. starting to be not just bored. But dangerously bored. Well, the the fact that they're watching slideshows. I mean, that's kind yes. of the comical thing you show sometimes when you want to show how somebody's boring yeah. a whole room full of people by showing slideshows of their trip. You know, here they're doing it after they're the world is supposedly it. ended. You know, and they're like, you know, and they're yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is yeah. this is like the highlight of the week yeah. as far as we can tell. Right. And uh, the movie does cleverly get across the amount of time that's going by. From the time the movie begins until the time of the movie ends, and not just because enough time goes by that a character gets pregnant, mm-hmm. but because we uh, we we do feel more and more in the past in the first like thirty or forty five minutes that these characters are getting on each other's nerves more frequently. There's less uh, there's less patience with each mm-hmm. other all the time, and that this is something that they're trying to control because they're aware mm-hmm. that they that they need to control it because the situation is not like they can just walk outside to like blow off steam. They've right. got to stay where they are. Right. And so um, part of this is built into the way it's written, mm-hmm. but part of it is it could have been alleviated with a director with a with a more firm hand on how to tell a story with more energy, I think. Mm. But, like I say, he may have fallen into the trap of thinking this script is solid enough that if I just shoot it, I'll be all right. Mm. So I don't know. No. But I think that the evidence we have is that he didn't. He didn't get to. He didn't get to pull the trigger on directing many films in the first place. Right. And so um, maybe he was not best suited <clears throat> for that main director's chair. Maybe his. His real talent really was as being uh, someone's uh, right-hand man as a second-unit director. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. One of the things that I like a lot about this film, or I think is one of the more areas it's effective, you mentioned the acting and the script for sure. Another area is uh, some of the sound design, I think, is, is oh. well done. Um, because in two particular things, one is the... One of the first sounds we hear is the clicking of the pool balls. You know, it's, it's like that that, yeah. that click, yeah. click, click there... I think it wears on. I think it grates on us in the way that it's supposed. To, the way it's supposed to. And now I think we recognize that hearing that sound that way it grates on the characters too. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is there's this ongoing pool game mainly between the two guys who, and a lot of it has to do with both of them being particularly competitive. I mean, yeah. uh, Bob, as it more goes on, the more and it, I mentioned being a control freak is also I think this this continual that pointless game is, competitiveness about yeah. the game. Yeah. And know. so I think that that in that click click of the pool balls there, I think really is is effective throughout the film. And the other one that I think is more 
interesting choice that I think is bizarre and weird and could be viewed as a bad choice. I, I think it's kind of fun is those crazy sounds that come out of the Chris's radio. Oh, yeah. It's just, I mean, some really bizarre noises more than just your usual feedback. I mean, some of them are just eerie and, and I mean, really Well, to the point where sounds. the characters are, com- are, are yeah. commenting on the fact that you know, they start as they as time passes, they start to become a little bit more paranoid. And it's like they sound like the sounds of the dead. Yeah, and and Chris is convinced that it's other that it's aliens listening, and he says it's people from another world who want to help us and trying to figure out. Yeah, yeah. And who's who's to say he's wrong? I mean, so we never know. I mean, we never know what those. But some of that noises are not. There's no explanation really for them. But I think it's an interesting choice to come up with something that outlandish. I agree. I agree. And that is another element, like I say, that's built into the script mm-hmm. that really does add another what if kind of question in your mm-hmm. mind as the sto- mm-hmm. as the story goes on yeah and it's it's like like I say um, the vast majority of opinion on this does seem to be d- does seem to fall on the negative side mm-hmm. people uh, just kind of looking at it I think it I mean not that I mean you can make criticism of the film but oh, I think, yeah certainly but but I think it, it is a slow film I mean sure I mean if yeah. you're if you're if you're wanting some I mean it's not it, yeah it's 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 a very slow moving film for sure it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a post apocalyptic chamber piece yeah, let's it is. be let's yeah. be clear yeah. that's how it, I would it could be a play it. I mean if you took yeah. out the took out the outdoor scenes I mean, it could be a play easily um I was fascinated by how the this final scene show us you know, they, they do that classic thing of showing you the, the, the beginnings of things at the very yeah, last. Yeah, I like that, yeah. Which I think I think was absolutely fascinating. And really wonderful because it really highlights the the, the change mm-hmm. in what these characters were like in a fully functioning, yep. you know, normal society versus mm-hmm. what this horrible situation pushed them into being. Yeah. And I thought I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And it's, it's one of the one of the things where I I I ended up liking this film Let's put it this way: when I when I watched this film for the very first time just a few weeks ago, fifteen minutes into it, I thought, "Wow, I am not going to like this movie. Mm-hmm. I'm going I'm to find some things that I like about it, but overall, but, I'm not going to like it." By the end of the first viewing, yeah. I was like, "I actually like this movie, but it's not great." Mm-hmm. And after a second viewing, I'm like, "Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I feel exactly the same. It's, it's it, I would love to see a better presentation of it." Oh yeah, same here. I would really yeah. love to 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 have a, a really sharp presentation of this film. Right, because I think there's still visual details you, we right. miss right. that that we miss with the print that we're dealing with right now. Uh, and some of those details I don't know that I necessarily want to see. Yeah, yeah. But some of them I know I do. Yeah. Um, you know, not 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 to be a, a sleaze bucket, but you know, Patty mm-hmm. Shepard is naked a few times. Yeah, so, that's hey, that's hey, I'm not gonna <laughs> not gonna say no to that. But the idea that. Um, this is a bad movie. I can't agree with. No, I, I no. like this movie. I don't think it's great. Um, and just to just to kind of wrap that aspect of things up, uh, I kind of I kind of lean. I, I I fell on the on the one to ten scale. I end up giving it a six. I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. A better presentation might might make me think better of it. Mm-hmm. But as it stands, it's like it's not a film that I can recommend to everybody. Mm-hmm. But it is a film that, uh, let's just say, there are certain people that I know that I know I could point toward this film and say, I think you'll get, a, I think you will enjoy this. Yeah. And get a kick would be the wrong phrase. This right, is not right. a film that's going to give you any, you know, yeah. like visceral thrills or yeah. kicks. This is a, this is this is a thanker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to have to think <laughs> about this, and friends. This one's got some shit going on mm-hmm. in it that's not necessarily going to blow up your skirt. <laughs> There, there, did I did I insult my own type again? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that hit very close to home there, right? <laughs> uh, well, it's funny. I, I gave it a six as well, and it was, I think, probably almost for the exact same. Oh, really? I think for the exact same kind of thing. Yeah. You is that I like the film. I, I probably won't return to it, but I would happily return to it if it came out in a better version. Oh, yeah, I would, yeah. In a heartbeat, I'd watch again if there ever is surfaces a better print. Yeah, if Martha Macabro put this out on Blu-ray, yeah, I'd yeah. be buying it immediately, yeah. yeah. If it doesn't, then, you know, chances are I probably won't, you know, there. But that And that's kind of where right. why I fell on the six there with an acknowledgement that, you know, hey, it, another viewing in a really nicer print might raise it possibly to a seven, you know. Or so, but either way, it's a it's a six with a lot of uh, that. I, there's a lot to admire about the film, you know. Things there really that, is, yeah. Yeah, and I, I do want to stress that uh, I think Patty Shepard uh, does the best job of acting in this film. Mm-hmm. I think overall, all the actors are doing really right. good jobs. Right. But the the script puts her in a position where she's got a lot of ground to cover emotionally mm-hmm. and. Uh, she does an excellent job with it. I think Craig Hill is fantastic. Yeah. I think the whole cast is good, but the two of them are put in a position to have to show a lot of range, mm-hmm. and I think they do a good job. And because they represent the two ways you deal, the two extremes you deal with this situation. Well, she doesn't. Not the extreme of where you, you know you kill yourself or you go that crazy or whatever, but but in the sense of like, you know, his his thing is is rigid control and sticking to normalcy is what gets us through. Her yeah. thing is her thing is why bother? As she says in once in the film, she says to Chris, she says, "Are we really alive?" You know, when he mentions about the being yeah, alive, she because says, "Are we?" Because that's one of the key yeah. questions: is what constitutes really being alive or not? You know, what constitutes really living? Right. She's almost like you know, is there any point to this? You know, I mean, she's she's more there to break things up. Or shake things up, or to just—that's her way of keeping interested. I love the scene where she comes in in the hazmat suit out of nowhere. Oh, she I know. That's just, a just great to, scene. Just to freak everybody yeah, out. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 that's one of the things that I that I really that makes me think that this is a movie that could have been better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is yeah, that so. that there there the elements are there for mm-hmm. this to really be a standout movie mm-hmm. for this to be a movie on the mm-hmm. level of something like the people who own the dark. Yeah. But the difference there is this director versus Leon Klamowski. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was I was thinking that a, a, yeah. a more dynamic director, more imaginative director would have yeah. would have could have elevated this a little bit. I think so. Somebody with somebody with more experience, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But nevertheless, uh, Refuge of Fear, uh, Creation of the Damned, pretty darn interesting film. Yeah. Glad we finally got to see it. Glad we learned about it. Yeah, so, right. To be blunt. Yeah. yeah. And uh, let's just uh, put out the call now. Please, someone, find a really good print of this film yes. and, re- and release it on Blu-ray. Please. We'd be more than happy to do a commentary track, mm-hmm. but there might even be somebody else out there <laughs> who'd be even better at it. Maybe some post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. film nut who's got yeah. a lot more information about this thing. But I would promise that it, we would learn our pronunciations, but we probably wouldn't. But we'd love to do it. We'd give it a try. We'd give it a try. We'd try. We would ask people how we should sound and then fail yeah <laughs> i can guarantee that's probably the way it would go yeah <laughs> nevertheless uh folks we're gonna take a quick break we'll come back and i think we have some we have a little mail, mail. We we have have a little mail. mail. all right we'll be right back i am dr lee cushing welcome to my chamber of horrors dr cushing's chamber of horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic universal and hammer horror film it's written by stephen d sullivan the award-winning author of white zombie Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. 
coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. All right, everybody, hang on one second. Here we've got some mail. We've got a couple of pieces of mail to read out. We will start with, uh, what do you got there, Troy? Oh, I can barely contain my excitement. I love mail. I just love mail. Uh, <laughs> it makes you feel like you're alive. It does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yes. We often ask the question, are we alive? And we don't know it until we get until we get mail. <laughs> until we get mail. Mm-hmm. That's true. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, uh, yes, this is from Dennis. Dennis, our friend Dennis. Okay. Dennis the Menace. Uh, uh, he says, uh, hello, Nashy Cast, Rod and Troy. Uh, two things. First, I am a long-time listener and just recently started re-listening to past episodes. Oh. Uh, it's a glutton for punishment. Going for a second spin. <laughs> Said, I really enjoyed hearing the Santo episode again. You guys really seem to love the Santo films, and it almost sounded like more Santo episodes were in the future. This has not happened yet. I know you guys have a lot on your plate. but I It hope will. You, it yeah, will. it will. He said, but I hope you consider more Santo eventually. I know Santo slash Dracula just got a Blu-ray release. Um yeah, it's 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 one of those things. You know, we talk. Uh, you, we're always saying like, yeah, we got to do this series, we got to do that series, and there's just so many. But we love Santo films, and we were very happy that that ended up. I mean, that was one of the best. I mean, Santo versus Doctor Death. I think's the one we That's did. Great, yeah, it's a great film. Uh, yeah, Santo and Dracula did just come out on Blu-ray release. The uh, the uh, naughty oh, the, version, the, the sexy version, the sexy should, version. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, sexy. it's the we should we should clarify. It's the sexy version of the film uh, that you can see in a clean version called. Uh, the Treasure of Dracula. Right. Santo in the Treasure of Dracula. There's right. a sexy version of it called uh, the, the the was it the the Vampire and the Sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the span the translation. Yeah. Of the, span- the Vampire and the Sex, and the sex. <laughs> with Santo. So yeah, it's uh, one of those fam- one of those films famous for there being two two versions of it. One mm. sexy, one not. Mm-hmm. He says, and second, I heard Rod review a film that he had thought was a seven, but he realized he was, in his words, very wrong on a rewatch. And gave the film an eight. This got me wondering what point, what one point discrepancy is the biggest to you guys? I know one of your bloody pit co-hosts, Sullivan, I think that would be Steve Sullivan, refuses to give tens to films because there are no perfect films. Ah, no, it's not. Uh, is it's it not, not Steve? It's, it's actually Maddox. It's Mark Maddox. Oh, Maddox. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He and I, he and I have had this fight many times. Oh yes. Well, it's yeah. It's it's Maddox. He wouldn't give anything a ten. I know him. <laughs> <laughs> to hell with him. <laughs> I just recorded two episodes with him back to back. So believe me, tell, telling Maddox to go to hell is something that's <laughs> it's just in my blood right now. So. Uh, and I, 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 I disagree with him. There's probably a few films I would give a 10 to. Not many, but a few. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, well, and, and Dennis says uh, the to the idea that there are no perfect films, he says, I think that is bananas. But I feel that the gap between 9 and 10 is huge. It is huge, yes. For instance, Heaven Can Wait, 1978, is a fantastic film full of great humor and romantic moments. I can watch it on repeat. But the ending is nebulous, and maybe manners in the afterlife can be that way. It is not that it is a bad ending, but I cannot quite give it a 10, even as I would really like to. Yeah. Thank you for all that you guys do. Well, thank you, Dennis. And uh, that's a really good question, because I think this film tonight is a, is a perfect one to use as an example. You said, what is the biggest discrepancy between points and I think a six and a seven for me are the hardest one are the ones that so many of the times I waffle the most between because I think one to five is pretty self-explanatory once you get to six and seven and I think eight to ten is pretty self-explanatory but once you get to six and seven is when that area where I can look at a film and say this film is good it did really kind of what it set out to do 
Yeah. So does that make it a seven? But at the same time, I don't really see myself going back to wanting to watch this again. And so, because to me, anything from a seven up is almost to me something that I could just see myself, even if I'm not going to have to do it, a podcast on it or an audio commentary. So if I just see myself every few years, maybe digging it out and enjoying it again, whereas a six to me kind of falls on, I can admire it things, but unless I get some real incentive to see it again, like for instance, a really great print or, or, right. or again, I'm going to do a, a, a something, some sort of research on it or something I'd, probably won't return to so that's where six and seven to me are the two the biggest gap i think between numbers well i think that's that's interesting um this is this is something i've not discussed with you before mainly because it it, it's 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 such a personalized way of looking at these things because so many of the films i rate every film that i watch i keep a i keep a running list on the blog i post it up every month and one of the things that Mm -hmm. uh you, you may notice and it's something that almost anybody who thought about this for a little while would think would be obvious is that most of the films that I end up watching fall somewhere in the four, five, six, and seven range. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's just mm-hmm. what I end up mm-hmm. rating them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is because my interests are in older films in general. Mm-hmm. I watch a lot of recent films as well, but in mm-hmm. general, I love those things. And so, when you talk about um, a film that hit its target, that did what it set out to do, for a lot of older films, especially programmers like. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a lot of the stuff that I watch, like uh, ser- series mystery things and stuff like that, or, or uh, you know, programmer B B movies from the the forties and fifties and stuff like that. If they did exactly what they set out to do, they fall pretty much into that six range for mm-hmm. me because mm-hmm. it's like they're not spectacular, right. but they're doing exactly what they set out to do. Yeah. And what? But one of those films can. If it surprises me, if it does something yeah. spectacular, if it's an extremely good example, like watch, like going through the the Falcon series, the Falcon mm-hmm. series of films, mm-hmm. most of those movies are about a six, mm-hmm. but there are a couple of them that are extraordinarily well written and really surprise you, and they're like, wow, those are that that one's a seven, and there's at least one of those Falcon films where I honestly debated whether it was an eight because mm-hmm. the script was incredibly sharp and just like out of nowhere this kind of programmer uh, film that was yeah. just another in a series of Falcon films mm-hmm. turned out to have an extremely sharp script. But I will say that the biggest gap for me has a tendency to be between the 9 and the 10. Okay. Because there are a lot of movies that I honestly consider to be 9s. Yeah. That, that hit their marks so hard, that have so much uh, juice and energy that... The, all of the all of the the things that you hope for in a movie are being are being nailed just as well as they can be made. I mean, they're just mm-hmm. strongly made, just really really good. Mm-hmm. But they're not exactly perfect in a certain way so that you feel like the the number of, of movies that I would give a ten are are few and far between. Same here. Uh, the yeah. the example I always give is uh, the Wild Bunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would add to that something mm-hmm. like Godfather Part Two. Mm-hmm. You know, those are movies that I have. Absolutely no problem yeah. saying that movie's a 10. <laughs> I really think yeah. that that's as good as that movie could have been. Yeah. Two for me are Casablanca and uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Good for yep. me. So, yeah. Fabulous choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a part of me that thinks that uh, Bringing Up Baby is a 10. Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. my God, it's mm-hmm. like the supercharged, perfect version of a screwball comedy. Mm-hmm. It is exactly what that form could possibly be in every hitting every target that it aims at mm-hmm. perfectly but there but you know the other the other big gap for me and this is 
luckily not as frequently <laughs> something I run into, is that big gap between three, two, and one. <laughs> because once you once I'm rating yeah. a film a three, yeah. that movie sucks. In yeah, my yeah. Again, in my the opinion, could, it's the, terrible. Yeah, and the question is, and then you think like, yeah, and for it to suck enough to then go from a three to a one, that's a big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of suck. It's like there. <laughs> I, I've seen I've seen some movies in the past year where it's like that's a two. That is a <clears> shitty, <throat> shitty, shitty, shitty movie. Yeah, but. I almost never can find it, find it within myself to go to a one because a one is just absolute, not just bad, but just it's incompetence. Just, yeah, just a, a level of incompetence. In other words, it's the opposite of a ten. Mm. Where it's what maybe Shadows of Blood. Would I, I, you know, yeah, I, I don't yeah. remember what we gave that film, but it was probably a one. And uh, but I, don't I didn't. Remember, I think I maybe gave it a two. A two, maybe something. something yeah, like that. yeah. It's a level really, where you're like this person shouldn't even be. Should, shouldn't have been done. allowed to even hold a camera. Should, yeah, yeah this, this should not have been made. I mm. should not have seen. <clears> it. <throat> yeah. it should not have existed. This is a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Why does this exist? You know, why yeah. does it exist? Is a yeah. one. Yeah. And I've I've experienced a few ones in my life yeah. where you're honestly wondering. I it, the thought the thought always runs through my head. Somebody worked their tails off on this. Mm. Not all of them, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> but somebody worked yeah. their asses off on this movie, and it's this bad. Yeah. 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 That's, I, if if I, it to and I will say too that uh, if I'm right, I think the only thing in our whole history of podcasting we ever gave a ten to was the Paul Nashy documentary. The, yes. Uh, the, I think that's the only thing we've ever given a ten to. And and if we took an average of every rating we've ever done. I bet we would come out to about six or probably around six, six or six something or would probably be what our six and sevens would be probably our probably right. so yeah probably so but that's that that's where I find the biggest gaps is yeah. at the at the far extremes mm-hmm. you know pretty much like what you would expect because for me most yeah. films fall in that five to six to seven range mm-hmm. because I'm already eliminating a lot of films that I would rate a four or five in the first place yeah because they just aren't of interest to me and so yeah. I'm not going to spend the time I'm not going to spend the ninety or hundred and twenty minutes yeah. discovering how much I don't like it yeah. you know it's just right. like I yeah. probably <laughs> not going to enjoy this yeah it's like why do I want to watch mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, another romantic comedy from the early two thousands I've seen a couple of them. They made my groin hurt <laughs> as if someone had punched yeah. me. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really done with that. Well, it's like we reserve, you know, one day a year, which is our, our friend, a friend of ours, John, has a has a uh, party after Thanksgiving, which he calls Turkey Night. Yes. Where we specifically reserve to watch bad films, you know. But I think as we get on in our years and realize our time is growing relatively Short. I think we just realized we have less and less. There's less and less. Few, well, fewer days in front of us than behind. Yeah. Us. There's less and less charge at, at seeking out movies we know that we really suspect are going to be bad, and watching them for that entertainment. Unless we have something like Mystery Science Theater or Rift Tracks to help us along with it or something yeah, like this that. Is true. So. I don't know. I do. I do get a kick out of watching uh, really bad high budget disaster films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the, those, there, things, those, those things that are made generally by people like Roland Emmerich, where you yeah. know it's going to suck <laughs> because Roland Emmerich and Logic have never been in the same room. <laughs> so yeah, th- those are fine. Yeah, the things sometimes hearing a movie that you've heard and you know seeing a movie that you've heard is so bad that you, there is a certain curiosity to say, oh, okay, yeah. I've got to see if if people really exaggerated this you know or is it truly as bad 
or even worse than you know than I thought. You know, like Battlefield Earth was quite a revelation. That, that's exactly where so, I was about to go. I heard so much bad about Battlefield Earth. I thought it cannot really be. I'm going to watch this, and it's going to end up being. I'm going to be like, okay, that was bad, but people really exaggerate. It's like, no, it was actually. It was actually terrible. Yeah, yeah Howard the Duck's another example too. That. Oh my God! I did not even. Who, there I, are people who laud yeah. that film, and I'm going. Yeah. Are you watching this through? <laughs> I mean. Were you drunk every time you watched it? I mean, just out of curiosity, because that thing really is painful to watch. Yeah, it's it's, it's got Leah Thompson in her underwear, and that is the one yeah, that is the one redeeming quality of yeah. the entire film. It's like I didn't even watch it for the first time until last year. After all these years of hearing how awful it was, I finally said I've got to see it. Sure enough, yep, it's it's every bit as horrible as everybody says it's it was. Terrible! Oh my God, it's bad. Okay, we got one yes. more email here. Uh, this is from Kurt. Uh, Kurt says, uh, well, he says, no need to read any of this on the air, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, we're going to, yes, just so there, Kurt. Yeah. Uh, thank you for reading my letter on your last episode of Beyond Nashi. I'm stunned that you let me pick the film for the next episode, Creation of the Dam slash Refuge of Fear. You've given me a taste of power, and that can be a dangerous thing. <laughs> and we created a monster. We have, we have. Oh, shit. He says, Rod, uh, you're right that Love Brides of the Blood Mummy isn't that great. Well, no shit. <laughs> He says, it hit my soft spot, though. When Frank Brana's character visited the Egyptologist and found him whipping a mummified hand that was chained to the wall, I thought, my God, what a wonderful world. <laughs> well, now he's playing because he describes it that way. Okay, yeah. fair, fair, fair point there, man. Fair <laughs> point, Kurt. You, you know, yes, check mark on the wall. Good job. Uh, everything after that was extra. I can see that. I recently watched The Howl of the Devil and listened to your commentary. I'm so glad I waited for the disc instead of watching the fuzzy YouTube version. Uh, yes, yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah. That that uh, that Blu-ray is a revelation, and I let us continue to recommend checking that movie out. It Absolutely. is it is finally viewable in a way that allows you to actually see what the hell is going on. I never cease to be amazed at the the detail that was just muddied right out of all perception. He says, I don't know if Nashi intended it, but to me, the film played as a cautionary tale against loving monsters, even imaginary ones. Monsters and monster fans like me can truck in being misunderstood, and behind the monsters might be demons. There's a pair of there is a, there's a pair of scenes that seem to bookend Adrian's story. When we're introduced to Adrian, he's watching TV, enthralled as the face of a rotting corpse transforms into that of his father. At the end of the film, Adrian looks enthralled or maybe exultant at his father's rotting corpse as it transforms into the devil. Then his hold on Adrian is complete. Again, I don't know if Nashi meant this interpretation. I know he partly wanted to make Howl the Devil a, an homage to the monsters that meant something to him. On the other hand, the movie was also a little about where playing those monsters led him. There's more food for thought in Nashi's movies than people might give them credit for. Thank you for bringing so much of that out, Kurt. You know, he's uh, he may have touched on something there that... We we might have uh, might have just glanced right over when mm -hmm. we did our track mm -hmm. for that. He's mm -hmm. right. That's an interesting mm -hmm. way of looking at it. Yeah. I I want to compliment Kurt for bringing out something that didn't occur to us. Yes, he's right. Well, yeah, I think that you know you could say that Nashi was making something that ha had homages to the classic monsters and the magic that they hold held for him in his youth at a time when he wasn't feeling particularly magical yeah. about anything. And so that may be where you really get that kind of, where he kind of subverting that idea at the same time he's putting it out there. Well, know, he was that. also, at the time, I mean, it's very easy to imagine him questioning, where did playing all these monsters lead me? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they've led me nowhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, to the point where I'm, I'm 
making a self-financed film yeah. in my, in the home that my you know in, in in the home that my parents owned and that I spent my summers in. Yeah. You know, that's where this has led me. Yeah. What the hell? This is where I started yeah. my career and I'm still there. Yeah. And so maybe maybe that plays into what Kurt's talking about. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. It's true. And the 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 boy played by Sergio Molina, you know, is is uh, we're set up the whole time for him to be our sympathetic character, the one to care about, you know, the yep. one that uh, we we like that he can find refuge with his friends, the monsters that come and visit him. Then we find out he's an evil little fuck. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and gloriously evil. Like yes, all yes. all, the, all yeah. the, the little touches about that character throughout the movie played by Sergio that are supposed to endear him to us and do endear yeah. him to us are also the kinds of traits that very easily hide an evil nature within yeah. that character. It's, 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 it's very fascinating. It's an extremely good movie and, it, and there's a lot there to it and it's as he, as Kurt said, it's far from being the only Nashi film that has those levels of depth yeah. within it right. if you just examine it. Yep. Well, if you have anything you'd like to talk to us about, either uh, Refuge of Fear, How the Devil, or any other Paul Nashi film or Spanish horror movie, you can write to us at nashicast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, please, if you uh, if you write to us, uh, please give us the go-ahead to to. to to read your stuff on the uh, on the show so we can discuss it and uh, we'd love to hear from you it's always great so with that we'll just say once again thank you for listening to the show uh, we'll be back mm-hmm. soon we're not we haven't quite decided exactly what our next episode here on NashiCast no. is going to be but uh, probably going to be another Beyond Nashi because we've got a lot of stuff to explore there but if you have any ideas once again drop us a line uh, also you can uh, join us over on the Facebook page and drop us a note there if you want to contact us in that way And uh, until then, I guess we'll just say I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we will see you again soon.